welcome to the Birth Activists podcast, hosted by me, Becky Scott, and fellow doula and activist, Samantha Gadsden. Hello everybody, it's Becky Scott here with the lovely Samantha Gadsden. Good morning, Sam. Hi, Becky. How are you today? Good, thank you. Hi, Kamal. Yeah, we've got the lovely Kamal here. Good morning. Good morning. So Kamal is based in Northampton, which is my neck of the woods, which is um, why she's here today, really, because I got in touch with you, Kamal, following your appearance on Look East. Um, Now, so you're not adverse to obviously speaking in public about your current situation. So would you like to just fill in the listeners, um, you know, what your current situation is and what what sort of drove you to to contacting Look East and appearing on on the telly? Yeah, no problem. So um, I have actually, I'm 31 weeks pregnant at the moment, and I have been pregnant since the first week of lockdown, um, which is quite funny because when people ask how long coronavirus has been going on, I can tell them it's been 31 weeks. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, But I, uh, it was a bit of a strange time at the beginning for me, because obviously, um, nobody knew what they were doing at the beginning of the coronavirus lockdown and I completely understand that and it was a really really difficult time for so many people um, and so many different services etc because nobody knew what to do so um, I this is my first pregnancy and I didn't really know what you do when you find out you're pregnant so I just called the GP and said I'm pregnant what do I do (laughs) and then they said Um, we will speak to the community midwife team and somebody will contact you um, but don't be alarmed if it takes a few weeks because obviously because of the coronavirus situation they're just working out what to do with the services so so that's fine Um, somebody did call me actually back the same day from the community services team um, and explained to me that my first appointment wouldn't be until I think it's 16 weeks isn't it usually you have your first appointment normally sooner than that because you have your scan at 13 weeks so oh okay yes so they said 16 at the time right Um, and they explained because of coronavirus things are probably slightly off of the time scales things might be face to face etc so obviously I did panic a bit because I was thinking Great. I live, uh, I wouldn't say close to my family. I I live about 60 miles away from my parents. Um, And although I do have my husband's family, I think you don't really have anyone that you can ask questions to. And when it's so early, you don't really always feel comfortable telling people. So I was a bit in the situation and the limbo where I didn't really know what I did for that first 16 weeks and I just kind of waited and I think it got to maybe eight weeks um and me and my husband were just watching tv and um I started to get pain in my side um and the pain was so bad that I was screaming and I had to stand up um and because I've never been pregnant before I didn't know what it was Mm. but it felt like a really 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 bad period pain um and I've never really been adverse to bad period pain so for me it was quite a it was quite a shock and then my husband just said okay what do we do so I called there was emergency telephone line that I was given called them couldn't get through 
um, it was nine o'clock, I think, at night. So I tried to call everyone else, um, all the other numbers I was given, and I couldn't get through because obviously the midwives were off their shift by then. So the emergency line just was not connecting. So I didn't really know what to do. And then I called 111 um, and explained to them what had happened. And they said, if, if you can get to a department, then you need to get to a department and go get checked out. Um, luckily, somebody from a triage team managed to pick up one of my messages and called me back and said, you need to come down to the department. Uh, and we need to see you now so I said yeah that's fine um and I said yeah okay so my husband will bring me and I said your husband's not allowed in and I was like what what do you mean my husband's not allowed in and they said sorry just because of coronavirus we're not allowed to to bring anyone in so part at this point, of me had you even been seen anybody in in person at all at that point no no and how long had that taken Tamar by then do you think from when you first started trying to ring I think it had been a couple of hours. You know, that's so concerning because that is a sign of potential ectopic pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So you did exactly the right thing to call people. Um, but, it, you know, and obviously it's not, it wasn't for you because you're still 31 weeks pregnant. Yeah. That sort of delay in that sort of situation and then to be told your husband can't come with you mm -hmm. must have been absolutely terrifying. Yeah, it was really scary for both of us. I think... Uh, I don't mean any disrespect to my husband more for me because I didn't even look pregnant at the time so it hadn't sunk in yet to my husband anyway so it was more to me and I've come from a history family history of um some difficult pregnancies so for me I've I think I've had negative thoughts about pregnancy in my mind since I became pregnant because of that yeah, so that would have added to the anxiety then. Yeah, so I automatically think the worst rather than thinking the best. So um, I went to I went to the department um, and it was really difficult because the person who triaged me on the phone, I was obviously panicking. They, they must have said to me to go to a department, but I'm not actually from Northampton, my husband is. And I have only ever been to that hospital once to visit my father-in-law a long time ago. Um, so I don't know my way around that hospital. So they gave me, they told me to go to a certain section. I could, wouldn't even be able to tell you what section it was now. Um, but I heard maternity. So I just said to my husband, just take me to maternity. So he took me to maternity day unit and it was a weekend. I think it was a Saturday or a Sunday. It was really, really quiet in the hospital. This was peak of the pandemic as well. So I went in, my husband waited outside in the closest entrance he could find. And I sat there and I sat there for about an hour. And I watched ladies go into a room. I watched ladies come out of a room. I watched midwives walk past me. Um, and then I realized that they'd given me a time. And when I looked at my watch, it had been an hour. Right. So I was like, what's going on? Why is nobody coming to see me? And there was nobody in reception. Um, and all the midwives were busy with other people in rooms. So I, I didn't really feel like I could interrupt someone. Mm. And then my husband had obviously taken time out of work. He works seven days a week um, and was waiting in the car. And he was obviously quite anxious as well. So he was calling me to say, is everything OK? You've been in there for ages. And I just started crying in the corridor and I just said I 
I don't know. I no one's come to see me. I don't know where I'm going. No one's talking to me. Um, I don't. I don't know if I'm in the right place. Um, and he was like, okay, okay, don't panic. Just the first person you see, just stop them. So I had seen one of the midwives walk past a couple of times, and she was with a patient. Um, and she had obviously noticed I was crying and asked me if I was okay. And I had just said, you know, I've been waiting for an hour and I did call the triage line and they told me to come here. And she said, okay, just give me a second. Let me just make a couple of calls to find out if this is where you need to be. So she called a couple of people and then she came to me and said, you're not in the right place, but I will take you to the right place. Um, So she took me, it was across the hospital. So she took me to the right place and I just texted my husband to say, I wasn't at the right place but she's taken me there now and she did wait with me until my name was called because I was obviously sat by myself what for me that was a bit upsetting at that point is when I went in for my emergency scan I was sitting in the waiting room I looked around and there was only one other mum in there mum to be in there but she was with her partner and I was confused because I was like how is her partner here and it was definitely her partner she was sat next to him they were holding hands so I was like okay so she's obviously been allowed to have her partner for some reason maybe she's she's under the exempt or whatever the terminology is um but if you're going through a difficult time you always do wonder why somebody else is allowed and you're not absolutely Um, and I did again try and ask and say, is my husband allowed to come? Um, and then they said he can like come to the waiting area because there's nobody else in here, but he can't come inside with you. So I was just like, you know what? I've been waiting for so long. It's fine. He can just wait in the car now. What's the point? So um, I went in for my scan. Everything was thankfully fine. The other thing that I did notice is I know it was quite a small room, but there were three clinicians in that room. Really? Yeah. So my thought was, okay, there are three clinicians in this room. So are all three necessary? I'm not clinician. They might be. I don't know. But it was just a bit odd. So you can't have your partner, but there are three clinicians. The reason that they've been given for not having your partners there is is like increased risk to staff. Whereas in my mind, you know, you're living in the same house. So you generally, if you've got something, so is your husband. Whereas you're then put at further risk having three people from three different households in the same room as you yeah I want um, to wind back a bit as well before we go into that I want to wind back to the fact that you have a distressed pregnant woman sobbing in a maternity unit and nobody did anything for an hour yeah I am I'm still stuck kind of back into that bit that once she spotted it and she dealt with you that she helped you and she was very supportive but it doesn't change the fact that you were there in potentially a life-threatening situation yeah for an hour on your own and so, nobody nobody did anything no one so the, the funny part of that story actually is and I completely forgot about this and it's funny because um I was reading some of the what they said to me stories and right. the first thing she had said to me I didn't look pregnant in fairness 
uh, she might have thought that I wasn't and I was just waiting for someone I don't know I did not look pregnant at all at that point but the first thing she said to me because this is obviously how hysterical I was about the situation is are you okay and are you looking for I think it was something like the mental health unit or mental health support oh my god <laughs> so I was like okay I'm upset but I'm not not that bad <laughs> I think if you're a woman sitting in maternity then it's fair to say that you either are pregnant or were pregnant or hoping to be pregnant um you know one of those things uh, so and when I spoke oh, to my husband terrible. he thought it was he thought it was funny but I was just like well obviously I was rambling because I I was trying to explain but I couldn't get my words out with what was wrong so she'd automatically assumed that rather than saying okay let's calm down do, do you want do you want to calm down and then we we can talk about what's going on she just automatically assumed that there was something wrong with well there was something wrong with me but in a, in a different way yeah. so um I was just like okay I don't really know how to take that um and I just was like, no, I'm just pregnant and I want my husband with me and he's outside. And um, someone in that I know would have found that threatening and scary and they would have found it, oh, oh, I'm so upset they think I'm mad. I know yeah. that some some of the people I've supported would have potentially turned around and walked out to that point because they felt they, you know, because I've supported women with mental health issues. Yeah. And it can be scary to be judged. And if they would felt judged for seeking help, then that is not the way you would go about giving it to them. Yeah. Anyway. Even if it was accurate, you wouldn't just normally just, oh, well, do you need mental health support? You know, that's not yeah. really just the way we go about things as a general rule of thumb. Exactly. And at that point, I was quite close to being like, you know what, I've been waiting for an hour. I don't think anyone's really going to see me today. Maybe I should just go home. Um, and that is the position that I felt like I was in. Um, if I hadn't, I, I had basically said to my husband, if they don't see me in 10 minutes when I get to the other place, then I'm not going to stay and stick around. Mm. Um, so he said, yeah, that's that's fine. You've been waiting for a long time. Um, and then obviously they did see me quite quickly when I went into the other section. Um, so the, on, the, how many weeks pregnant were you at that point? I think I was maybe eight or nine okay so it's quite early on yeah it yeah. was quite early on yeah um so three clinicians in your room you know yeah. when you weren't allowed to have your partner and somebody else did have their partner um although the problem with that of course is then that's what we get told oh well you know we have to be fair to everybody because i i've got blogs on my website from a woman who with a disability and i've supported women with disabilities in yeah. this weren't allowed to have their partners at right. at all except the birth when they were in active labor um yeah. and that is because they keep saying oh you know well we have to be fair to everybody um and you know my answer to that has been well being fair to everybody isn't treating everybody the same because not yeah. everybody does have you know a woman <laughs> in a wheelchair where the partner is the main carer for example is is he is used to handling her so she's familiar with him and for, for those women the idea that a series of random strangers is going to be handling them and their baby and their partner can't yeah is awful you know um and you should both have had your partners in, in my personal opinion um but they take tend to take this as the what i'm going to say is the lowest common denominator well you know we don't want anybody saying that so we won't help anybody is kind of yeah. how i feel about where this ends up going mm. 
And so, Kamal, you obviously are feeling very anxious um, anyway. Um, like you said, you know, first week of lockdown and also first pregnancy. So it's all new to you. And then you obviously have, have this pain that you don't know what it is and you want to get it checked out and, you, you know, you're in the wrong place. You're being left there. So you've got all these heightened sort of feelings of anxiety, which aren't going to help your physical condition either. Yeah. Um, so... I mean, before this point, did you did you have um, any issues with um, mental health or anxiety before becoming pregnant? So I have had problems with anxiety in the past. My anxiety is usually linked to like new situations. Which so pregnancy for example, is? Yeah, so it's, it was, I, I first got it, I think when I went to university because it was a new setting. And then um, when I got married, um, I got quite anxious because it was a new house and a new setting as well um, and then that was maybe about two years ago so then it was I had kind of got back on track from that yeah. um, I, it's funny because I've never really been it's never been severe enough for me to ask for help it's always been kind of self-managed yeah. um, and but I've now because it's happened at certain points in my life which were quite pivotal points I I know when my triggers start yeah. um and at that point I think I thought I was just upset but it was only when I got a bit further along in my pregnancy that I realized that it was getting worse because I think um so my obviously because my husband can't come into the appointments after we had a certain number of appointments, I just said to him, do you know what, don't even drive me, <laughs> because it's kind of not in a horrible way for him, but it's, it's, we're both taking time out of work, not just one of us, um, and his work is on the other side of Northampton, mine's on one side, I'm driving from one side of Northampton to the other side of Northampton to collect him, so the time that it eats into our days to go to a 30 minute appointment is probably overall about three hours of both of our days. Um, our employers are fine with it, but he spends three hours of his day to sit in a car and listen to what I could tell him on the phone. So I just said to him, don't worry about it. Don't come to this appointment after a few months, I think it was. And I said, I'll go by myself. Um, and my most severe point of anxiety that I had a few years ago, um, I remember the trigger was driving because um, my mum my sometimes gets this as well, is that when she's driving, she'll go blank if she's feeling anxious. Um, and you could be going to somewhere that you go to every single day, like the supermarket, but you'll forget where you're going. And I was driving to my appointment, which was at the Saints rugby ground. And I put it into my TomTom -tom, and my TomTom -tom was in front of me, um, my phone thing. And I just went blank. I was driving on a street and I was at traffic lights and I just went blank. And the, the navigation was in front of me, but I couldn't like read it. <laughs> I just, I get it. I get yeah. it. It's a trauma response. So I get that I'll be, if I'm really stressed or really if something happens and I had to stop driving for six months, actually, um, I would be driving down the road and I'd lost that instinctiveness to driving. So, you know, you just know which side of the road you need to be on and you know which pedal you need to use. Yeah. And my brain freezes and my brain goes, oh my God, what side of the road am I supposed to be on? And at one stage I had to pull over on the side of the road um, and see which car's going past so that I could remember 
where I should be and I did have to stop yeah. driving for quite a long time that's what I had to do because I was right in front of a roundabout and I was just like I don't know I looked at the roundabout and just thought I don't recognize this place I don't know where I'm going I don't know if it's the right area I was looking at my tom tom and going I don't know how I get to where it's telling me to get to so I just there was a little road on the left so I just pulled off into that road and I literally just sat there for about 10 minutes and I was obviously late to my appointment and then the midwife called me and said are you here because I can't see you and I just said I'm really sorry but I I was running late and then I panicked and then I don't know what happened but I just don't know where I'm going and she just said okay it's all right um take your time to get here are you going to be okay getting here or do you want to go home or and rearrange your appointment and I, and I just said well he's saying I'm a few minutes away so I can't be that far so I just said let me give it another go and I'll call you if I can't make it there and she said okay that's fine and then I did manage to kind of after the 10 minutes go okay let me give this another go and then I made it there um and then I went into my appointment and again, I just started crying. <laughs> That's when she just oh. said to me, obviously they asked the, the questions at the appointments about is everything okay? And um, they asked, they, they're obliged to ask the mental health questions, aren't they, at each yeah. appointment over COVID, especially I think they're saying. So she did ask me the series of questions and I, and I just said, I think I would benefit from some support. Um, so she um directed me to a service which is called IAPT I don't know what it stands for but it's uh it's like a light a light touch therapy um service which is I think it's usually face-to-face -face once a week depending on how severe your symptoms are but at the moment because coronavirus is on the phone so um she referred me to them um and I have been getting that support since but this is that was quite I think that was about six months into my pregnancy mm -hmm. so I didn't realize how much of an impact that from that first visit to the hospital where I had had a breakdown and I was expecting something really bad to happen and my husband wasn't with me had obviously carried on from every appointment I had then been to because yeah. I realized any appointment that I'd been to the first thing that happened was I got upset when I walked into the room yeah. and I got upset because he wasn't there to share the experience or to listen to what was happening and I remember the first time at the beginning of Covid they had the signs up to say sorry you're not allowed to use your phones in the consultation rooms because it which it yeah and it said it was because of it said it was because of interference of equipment and I was like mm, I don't know if it is though because no. <laughs> I work in I work with hospitals and I always have my phone on me so they never tell us to turn them off in certain areas so I was like okay so we did ask especially when it was I didn't ask when it was that emergency that first emergency I just wanted to know everything was okay so I never asked them but when it was my first scan I said am I allowed to FaceTime or video something so that he can see this and they said sorry we're not allowed so and I was like I can't do anything like in an era where we're being told okay your partners can't be there but you can FaceTime people and you can do this and you can do that and I was like can I not even just FaceTime so he can see this on the screen and they just said sorry we're not allowed to allow you because it detracts 
notes from like the medical part of the appointment and I just thought surely after the medical part is done you could just leave it on the screen because they leave the room to go get notes and stuff mm. so surely they could have just left it on the screen for a second and just allowed me to take I know that you take home photos but just to FaceTime or something so he feels like part of it well, there's no harm in them allowing you to do that absolutely no harm at all there is there's an article doing the rounds that I will find and we will put it with this podcast that says you are legally allowed to record your medical appointments and obviously if you're having bad news you should be alone you shouldn't be alone okay yeah and also if you're having to make decisions you shouldn't be alone yeah you should have your partner your husband should be even if it's on a phone should be with you so that yeah. you can make those decisions that might come from these appointments and it breaks my heart and it makes me want to swear and I'm trying not to at the same time that they will provide you with mental health support for an anxiety that they of course that <laughs> your partner with you wouldn't put you in these situations where you're freezing you can't drive because you're so anxious which I completely understand because I get it you know, excluding him from these appointments, but then paying for a service to remedy what they have caused. Yeah, yeah. self-perpetuating, isn't it? Oh, I'm so, I haven't even got the words for how, you know, and to me, what I've been saying on They Said To Me, you've alluded to the fact you follow the page, is if we do not go to the doctors, we do not go to the GP, we do not go to the optician and the dentist in a high-risk setting, yeah? Yeah. Why we having if these appointments are in buildings and places that are not fit for purpose especially scans yeah because nothing happens at a scan where they go oh my god in two seconds flat nothing happens at a 20-week scan that needs to be in a high-risk medical environment you don't need to be in a hospital for the vast vast majority of these appointments why are maternity services in a hospital in the first place that's my question. Uh, it's, it's really interesting you say that because when I went for my first scan, my first official scan, the formal scan, that is when all of the um, non-electives and stuff started again. So people were coming in for their usual routine, that whatever they had missed for the beginning of coronavirus. And obviously the scan department is general, isn't it? It's not just for pregnant women. And it was busy. For, for that time of COVID, it was really busy and I was looking around and I, okay, part of me thought, okay, maybe it's a good thing my partner's not here because if every single person had another person, then I don't know how much busier it would be, but I didn't want to sit on a chair, even though it was every other chair, because every, even though they had put out every other chair, they were all full. And so actually staggering appointments. So the yeah. we all of these people in the same place at the same time you know really being efficient and not not doing these things I, I remember before Covid so I'm used to really busy hospitals where I live and I had a client who had an appointment at nine o'clock in a more small rural hospital so I turn up at five to nine because usually a nine o'clock appointment means you'd be lucky to be seen by half past twelve and because it's a small rural hospital she's in you know she's doing everything and I wasn't because I wasn't even late but they're efficient and on time and they stagger their appointments properly why do we need to have waiting rooms full of people yeah yeah so that was sorry 
<laughs> that was another point where I just thought, okay, I don't think I don't think all of these pieces of information they're giving us are really making much sense. Um, and then I think it got to about seven months of pregnancy, um, and obviously because I work in that I work in the NHS, and I work in it. Um, a lot of my work is around resilience planning and obviously coronavirus came under that, et cetera. Um, and some of the hospitals that I work with, they're the biggest hospitals in London, um, and they've been planning for coronavirus obviously since February. So it's not like it's a new plan for them. And obviously we get more information from the government and scientists and all these other sources. The plans have become more and more rigid. So they've had quite a strict timeline um, and they've had quite good plans for when our rate is this in area, then this, this, and this will, will go back to normal within these hospitals sort of thing. So I've been used to working with that sort of planning. So I thought, okay, great. There's a plan for the maternity services to be back on track. And I looked at the timescales and I was like, it looks like it's gonna be before I give birth, which is amazing. So I was really optimistic. Da, da, da. Then the, guidance came out in September so I was like great the guidance has come out so that means we're going to be able to do all of this that's great and then a few of my friends because obviously pregnant people have other pregnant friends from other hospitals sent me letters that they had received from their hospitals saying um, the new guidance has come out and we just wanted to let you know what you can and can't do moving forward and most of them had received these letters so two of them live in Leicester which is which was obviously at the time in lockdown yeah. and had been quite a restricted place and um they had said you know if we're allowed then surely you're going to be allowed and I said I haven't heard anything yet let me just try and ask and I asked and they said there aren't any plans yet and, like, and well, also just just with regard to Leicester as well, Kamal, is that actually um, Leicester were the were the only sort of local Midlands um, trust that actually kept their home birth service running. Oh, that was very interesting because obviously you know I, I'm in the in the Northamptonshire area, but Leicestershire borders Northamptonshire, and I, I have worked with some Leicestershire clients. And so I was sort of keeping track on what was going on as well. And although, like you say, Leicester has had a local um, lockdown recently again, even so, the restrictions seem to have been, um, you know, lessened compared to Northampton, for example. Yeah. So it's almost like, yeah, you speak to other people in different areas and it's like, well, this doesn't make sense because, um, you know, why are, why are they allowed to do that? But we're not. Yeah, and this is what I found really frustrating because when you have friends who do live in other parts of the country, so um, at, mo at the moment, I would say I probably know about five or six people who are pregnant. Two, two others are in Northampton are in, and are in the same position as me. Um, and the others are like Mother and Nottingham, Leicester and London. And all of those have been told that they are now allowed to take their partners to scans. Um, a couple of them obviously missed the boat because they'd already gone past their 16 and 20 week scans, but they were happy that, okay, fair enough, we can do it up till now, but the people after me can. So, so that's fine is what was their kind of opinion. Um, most of us, walked out and got private scans um because we can afford to but not everyone can yeah and that's the point I think and even 
myself, even though I could afford it, I thought about it two or three times and thought, why, why am I paying like 60 or 80 quid for a scan when I'm under the NHS um, and my husband should be able to come to a scan? And, and that is why I was going to the scan. The scan I was going to was so my husband could experience the scan. It wasn't so that I could get information that the NHS can't give me or I wanted to find out the gender early or anything like that it was literally just so he could be with me because yeah. the other thing is if you've got preeclampsia you don't know if you're going to have further kids or right. if you can so it's a risk so for me so you've all... got preeclampsia you've been diagnosed with preeclampsia then Kamal um, yes do I have you, do you yeah. um uh, because of that you you would have been labeled as high risk and be under yeah. consultant care is that correct yeah, that's right. Yeah. And does that mean that you were also offered uh, additional scans that you wouldn't normally have? Uh, yes. So I get scans uh, every four weeks after 32 weeks. OK, so you, you're having to go to these scans then, um, you know, monthly without your husband still. Um, at, so this they changed the restrictions in Northampton, I think, last week. OK. From sorry from this Monday this Monday that's just gone so I went to my 32 no I didn't because I am not at my 32 yet I went to my 28 week by myself yeah but my 32 week they said my husband should be able to come with me so that would be the thir first one that he right. is part of um but we d we don't know because of preeclampsia that might be the last <laughs> that might be the last one that he's part of so he's only got half the story yeah and this Sorry. is a high risk this is you know preeclampsia for anybody listening is a high risk pregnancy what it mostly likely means is that Kamal will have a baby early that you'll have a premature or slightly premature baby which I'm going to say just to reassure you I've been at a number of 32 week births and that all those babies are fine um because it can be quite scary to think you might have your baby early and your husband's not there to help you decipher the appointments to understand what they're saying to you um to hold your hand to be supportive you're just there alone trying to sort of unpick all of this complicated information in a high-risk anxious situation yeah and I think that that's a fair that's a fair summary of exactly what happened when I got told I had preeclampsia I just tuned out they they said the word preeclampsia and because I've heard of it before I just tuned out and I didn't listen to anything else they said at the appointment and when I walked back to the car and sat down and he said what did they say I couldn't even relay the information because I didn't take anything in. And what I had just said, from a blood test. Um, I think it was multiple tests it's when I had my I had my second emergency admission and the consultant saw me. So the week before that I had had a blood test, but it didn't come up in that. Yeah. Right. And obviously, you know, preeclampsia can be made worse by stress. Yeah. Um, so you 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 like sort of Sam said earlier in terms of you know they're giving you therapy to cure your anxiety which is being caused by them in the first place. It's almost it's it's that kind of situation again, isn't it? It's you know yeah. you're, you are a high risk pregnancy, and you know you need to keep your stress levels low, but the situation obviously isn't helping. Yeah, exactly, and I think that that's what's that's that's what's almost made it worse for me mm. um the the thing about me is um any of my family or friends who are probably listening will laugh um if I don't believe in something I shout about it a lot and 
until I think that point I was really patient um, and because I work in the NHS and I've experienced all the hardship that's gone with all the coronavirus planning I was just like no this is what's happening these are rules but as soon as that new guidance came out and everything changed for me and I just thought it's a national guidance mm-hmm. and okay the response was we've been told to tailor it to local you've been told to tailor it not to disregard it And I just thought that that was what the important message was. And any time any messages went across to the trust, there was two conflicting responses that were coming back. And one was Northampton has a high R rate, um, which really angered me because if Northampton has such a high R rate, why did they not put the town in lockdown in the first place? So that was one thing that really, really irritated me because I just thought you can't do one thing on one side of the county. And hospitals do work with councils. Go and speak to the council then and say, these people are suffering. We need to have a local lockdown. Don't just let them do it. I mean, there was a factory with 200 out. Uh, people who had an outbreak so if that wasn't enough to have a local lockdown I don't really know what Northampton were waiting for and then it's people such as myself or people who are isolating etc who were missing out because they wouldn't do a local lockdown and the second part of what they were saying is it's because of the location of our departments and people have to trail through one side of the hospital to the other and I was like that is a lie because I have never ever at any of my appointments walked inside the hospital from one appointment to the other there is a route always to exit a door on the outside walk all the way around it's the it takes the same amount of time as walking through the hospital and I tend to do that because it's quite depressing walking through a hospital so I don't like to walk through it yeah so I'll always find the exit from a, for a very early stage in, in lockdown, the, the hospital was split into red, amber and green. Green being like maternity end where you can en- enter through a different doorway and you're there at maternity. And like you said, you don't have to go in that door to reach the rest of the hospital. Then right at the other end, you've got the red part, which is your COVID patients, which again is, is accessed by a separate area where no one else has to go through. So yeah. apart from the scan area, which is sort of in the middle of that, um, the whole of maternity is is at the green area and has its separate entrance. So really, why don't we move maternity out out of the hospital where we've got the COVID patients? I have been asking this since the beginning of COVID. If we can build in the Wales Millennium Stadium, which is where they play rugby, we've built a new hospital, right? If we can build an entire hospital right? We can move maternity and our pregnant women and people out, out of these places. Yeah, It's driving me. I just, because to me, yes, it costs. Yeah, yes, it costs. It's going to cost to move a department. Yes, it requires investment. But you know what? Coronavirus is destroying the economy anyway. Let's protect our, our women, our birthing people and our babies and take them out of these ridiculous... Oh, sorry. I get really... I think the other issue with the the fact that they have different parts of maternity in different places is for pregnant people. So firstly, everyone knows that you get pregnancy brain. And secondly, um, you don't 
get letters, well, I didn't get any letters to say where my appointments were for what. So I had to keep ringing my midwife because I would keep forgetting to say, where is it? Am I in area K? Am I in where? Am I at the Saints? Am I, am I at the Saints? Am I in the main part of the hospital? And then I would have to write down the instructions of how to get there as well because. I, I'm not from Northampton, so I don't know what the easiest car park to get to wherever is. And then I'm not going to walk because obviously Northampton's a pretty big hospital as well. So if you park in the wrong car park, you have to walk quite a way to get to the right part of the hospital. Yeah. So there were some times where I was like, I can't remember where my appointment is because I, I wasn't issued any letters. And I was just told over the phone, your next appointment is at da 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 And at that point, I probably forgot to put it into my phone or whatever. So I'd have to call on the day and say, can you remind me of where my appointment is? So if you've got appointments at three different places, it really doesn't help. Whereas if you know that you're going to the same place every time, you know it doesn't matter what the appointment is. When I get there, someone will tell me. Um, so that was the other thing as well. And it's just been really confusing because some things are at the Saints, some things are at the hospital, but at a different part of the hospital. And then when you get there, they say you're at the wrong part of the hospital. You need to go to the other side of the hospital. It's just, it's a lot to take in. It is. So, so you... warehouse. Oh the yeah, it's not the most user-friendly hospital and, and I've worked there, so. <laughs> I can completely relate to that. But so Kamal, you know, like you said, the Northampton um, guidance and, and around scans and partners attending is changing, which is fantastic. And hopefully your appearance on, on telly um, helped towards that alongside, Yay. obviously you've got another petition as well that's, that's going around. Yeah. Um, so that's really fantastic news. But like Sam said, with preeclampsia, you are facing the possibility of being induced early before yeah. your due date. And so do you know whether, you know, your husband is going to be able to join you for that whole induction process or are those restrictions still in place? So those restrictions, as far as I know, are still in place. So, so I feel like... allowed to join you in the hospital. So that would be when I'm four centimetres dilated, I think it is. Yeah. And I've been reading some stories about people being induced and my sister was induced as well. And some people just said they went from nothing to there in seconds and I'm just thinking now I think it only really sunk into us both the week that BBC came that we were thinking you're not actually you you might miss it and yeah. even if you don't miss it you might miss part of it and even yeah. if you don't miss part of it you're not going to be there after anyway so you can't was, sit in his car for like hours can they just waiting but no. that's what they were expecting. They were expecting dads to sit in cars and wait outside and, to quote Game of Thrones, winter is coming. So we're going to have dads, you know, what about lower income families where they don't have a car? What are these dads going to do? Just stand yeah. outside in the freezing cold? Yeah. Oh. But I'm also, so then you've Kamal, got the other side, uh, the other consideration, Kamal, is, you know, sometimes induction takes days. So yeah. potentially you could be going through your early labour um, on your own. Yeah, and I think that that's the other thing that 
that does worry and scare me. I think for, for me, the biggest part is I've, I've always been a very independent person and I've never really relied on someone. So doing this by myself does not scare me. It's not about doing it by myself that scares me. What upsets me is the fact that they think it's okay to assume that my partner is not an equal inputter into my child's life and does not need to be there for this. I think that that is what upsets me. Like, I will try not to go into 2020 feminist mode about it, but I'm pretty sure we live in a day and an age where both parents are now considered equals and it's not, it's the mum's job just to pop out a child. And that's almost like the message I'm hearing is it's your job to pop out the kids. That's it. That's what you're here for. And it's not really taking into consideration that, there is somebody who would like to be a father who wants to be part of that moment, who wants to be there, who might be thinking, I don't know if I might, if we might have any other children together. So I, I might, if once I miss out on this, this is it. Like he might not ever experience it again. We don't know. You, there are so many unknowns about it. And I, it does upset him because he is thinking, I might miss out on first moments firstly and secondly what if you are not feeling okay after you give birth and they ask you a question and you don't know how to answer it and I'm not there to answer it for you yeah um and that's the other thing because because we are parents we make joint decisions that's what parents should be doing and if they ask me a question that's something to do with the child and I can't answer it at that moment I would obviously like to discuss it with my partner before answering and I have read a couple of stories on the on the MVP group where where ladies have had quite a traumatic experience and have asked if they could go and discuss it with their partner but they've not been given that option and that obviously does scare me because I think what if something does happen and and I know that they keep saying oh but you shouldn't think that something is going to happen but it not every birth is straightforward you can't say that yeah you've got a high risk pregnancy you've got preeclampsia so you know there are going to be worries and concerns and for them to not allow people to talk to their partners is just shocking and I always talk to my clients um about you know if you're faced with some kind of decision firstly we talk about the brains analogy so asking the right questions about what the benefits are what the risks are and the alternatives but also it's very very rare that a situation arises when you don't have at least you know half an hour 10 minutes half an hour to talk about that with your partner and make a decision it's very Um, rare that things have to be made you know decisions have to be made immediately and you should be allowed the time and the privacy to have that conversation with your partner under the nice guidelines you're supposed to go away and discuss things with your partner you're supposed to be given the time to discuss things with your partner oh, I'm, I'm actually lost for words again um, and that doesn't happen very often no it doesn't but this <laughs> I find it um, you know and has anybody talked to you about whether you your partner will be able to have access to neonatal intensive care or special care baby unit or anything like that they haven't talked to me about it yet no yeah so that's a conversation that they should yeah and I think this is the other thing is as a first-time mom I feel like a lot of the detail during coronavirus has kind of got lost in our in our appointments because I 
I have come to stay with my parents this week and there are certain things that my sister has asked me have they talked to you about this yet have they talked to you about that yet and I'm just sitting there blankly looking at her and she's like okay and then I think she's trying not to panic me so she's like I'm sure they'll talk to you about it at your next appointment so we kind of just sat down and went through all the stuff that she already knew about by now and I wrote it down because I thought okay I'm gonna have to go and ask these questions when I go in next week to my appointment but I shouldn't have to be doing that because not everyone's got that resource or access to someone who's had a kid already and I'm lucky that my sister remembers all this even though it was five years ago and she remembers okay these are important things that you need to know about by now and you obviously have not been told yeah Um, Sam Sam will agree with me I mean it was like this pre-covid but it's just because um a hundred times worse within covid in that people are not being given information they're not being told all of their options um and and so you're not alone there kamal um you know there are a lot of other first-time parents going through exactly the same even before covid which is just not okay no yeah and the, sorry, the the no fa- the fact that there's no NHS classes running at the moment in the, in, um, in Northampton, I think that that's just added to that because we don't have any access to resources unless you you are willing to pay for it. Yeah. So I've managed to find like a course online which is a reasonable amount of of money per class because not everyone can afford to go to nct or whatever it might be to learn about things and if you haven't got any access to anything we kind of don't so firstly we're giving birth in coronavirus so we've been given all of those kind of options taken away from us the second thing is we're not really trained and I know there's no way to be trained to be a mum but trained to understand some of the issues that we might face after we have the child so we have no idea some people might not have the access to the classes and are literally just going in blind so to me I just feel like they've kind of kicked themselves in the in the teeth because they're going to have all these worried mums now next year probably showing up to their A&E department every couple of weeks because something is wrong with their child and they they don't know how to detect what it is because they didn't have any classes to explain to them what to look out for what not to look out for etc and I just think that it's crazy that in a time where they've taken away so much support from us that they couldn't even consider to do an online zoom class or something to access this information um, they just let us kind of crack on with it ourselves and it's not like the the younger kids in Northampton have been blessed with the greatest starts everyone knows that there there is a problem with some of the the youth development services etc in Northampton it's 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 been claimed to be one of the worst in the country so you're already starting a child off on the back foot because their parents aren't educated on what they might need to know for that child's development as birth workers i know that we're seen as a thorn in the side of the nhs and you know we get accused of being anti-midwife anti-nhs not being supportive but as birth workers we also pick up the pieces of the gaps that you are suggesting so at the start of covid i was online because i run a big massive home birth group i was online anything regularly up to 23 hours a day providing free support for people in the situations that you describe and Mm. people kept telling me you don't have to do this and no I didn't have to do anything I didn't 
have to do it, but because I created online groups, I felt a responsibility as one person. I felt a responsibility to the people in the group that I had created and to their mental health and to help them. And, you know, the reason that we're making this much noise and the reason that they said to me exists and the reason that the birth activist page exists is because we do pick up the pieces of these gaps. We don't just sit there criticizing. We spend hours and hours and hours every single day supporting people often for free. Yeah. As much as we can to try and pick up the pieces that the NHS has left behind in the birth world. Like there's an army of birth workers behind trying to help women who have literally just fallen through a gap of what I consider to be. You are not a baby carrying vessel, as you alluded to earlier. You're not somebody here to pop out a child. You're a woman with needs and feelings and mental health and the intergenerational mental health trauma that this is creating the lack of bonding between father and child or birth partner and child. You know, I I read the story the other day of a hospital with a policy of not allowing dad, only one person was allowed to see a child who was in NICU, a father who hadn't seen his child for four months. And that is also happening in paediatrics. Yeah, so to children, you know, I cannot imagine if my child was sick not being allowed to see them for four months and that the NHS thinks this is acceptable. Well, this is this is the conversation I was having with my mum my while I've been staying with her is because she's had, she had multiple traumatic births. She had four in fact, and she's actually said to me herself, so her last birth was me, that was 31 years ago. And she said, 31 years ago, your dad was allowed to come to everything because of the issues that I had with all of the kids and 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 I just found that shocking I was like so basically that what you're saying is 31 years ago you had better services than what I have now Mm. and she just couldn't imagine going through having us without my dad being able to be there and see what was going on and and yeah okay maybe he he had the option of staying every night I'm not sure if I don't think they were allowed to stay overnight then so um he used to like wait in the car overnight sometimes but how much um, he loved her though sorry how much he must have loved her to stay in the overnight in the car so he (laughs) and well and often like my my two of my siblings were in um specialist hospitals in London so I don't think my parents had a car for one of them so they would have had to get the bus to go there and my dad would have to like go and see her and then go back home and then bring her stuff and it was just little things like that that my mum just thought because um one of my siblings was in um intensive care for a number of months and my mum just said like he just used to do little things like go home and make something I really wanted to eat and bring it here and it just made you feel that little bit better because you you're sitting there thinking I don't know when my baby's going to be out if I'm leaving here with my baby if they're going to get to see them again or whatever it might be but she said it just made your day that little bit better because you were just thinking hospital food is pretty dire at the best of times isn't it (laughs) (laughs) exactly so it was it does make me think 
well, I still can't believe that 30 years ago things were better than they are at this moment in time. And when the hospitals are saying things like, you know, when coronavirus goes, it's kind of like saying, well, how long is a piece of string, isn't it? Or how long is the letter, uh, what about the letter Y to children, whatever the expression is. But um, it's like, it probably isn't going to go for a really long time. So are you just going to wait around for it to go before you put a plan in place? Surely you should put a plan A and a plan B in place because it's probably here to stay to be completely honest for a while at least so that I just feel like everyone else is kind of cracking on with life and this is it's going to be here for a while so what else can we do but I just don't feel like these services are working like that it's kind of like yeah. we'll just wait for it to go away and I really like it, it. I think so. Yeah, I think they like having the control, definitely. But also um, it's that whole thing of, you know, the government are saying these are the guidelines. It's up to the trusts to do it. But at the same time, they're then, you know, the public is then turning on the NHS, whereas really we should be turning on the government because the government should be enforcing these things. And, you know, we all know what the government's like at the minute. And there's been talk of privatising the health service and getting rid of the NHS and I think ultimately you know there's a lot of other stuff going on behind the scenes that are affecting all these choices and guidance and changes going on. Um, I just wanted to touch on Kamal you mentioned about the Maternity Voices Partnership um, locally here have you been able to get much support from from the group at all? So um, I've only been part of it for I would say a month or something so I didn't really know what it was and then a friend invited me to join and then I joined it and um, I went to one of the Q&A sessions and it was terrible and I asked lots of questions and because I work for the NHS I, I like to ask detailed questions like can you show me data because in my job you're not allowed to make a decision in the NHS unless you've got data because you're working with millions and thousands of pounds worth of services so if you don't have the numbers to back up your decision you can't make that decision and in my opinion as an NHS professional that is the way it should be because if you don't have that data to back up the the funding then what are you doing so I was asking lots of questions and I think they were a bit blindsided by some of the questions I asked but one of the questions that I asked which was can you tell us how many referrals have been made by um, pregnant women in the Northamptonshire catchment to mental health services and how that compares to pre-COVID they told me to go away and ask the service myself and I have never in my life of working in the NHS held a public forum where I have told a member of the public to go away and find the data themselves I would always say I will go back and look into that and get that to you I don't have it to hand and I was really shocked by that answer and the other one was they had quite a blanket response it seemed like they knew that the questions were coming about the guidance so they had a very blanket response to basically we're not going to allow partners so we can't answer that question we're not going to allow partners so we can't answer but they weren't giving any detail behind why and this is the thing it's like you know you go to a shop with a child and you say you can't have that 
they're going to say, why mummy? Why mummy? Why mummy? Until you give them an answer, the question is going to be why? And that is it with anything else. If someone tells you you can't do something, I think people are more willing to accept it if they know the reason why. Yes, and that's all we wanted a response to. I didn't necessarily... I know that I might not hear what I want to, but I would rather hear the truth and the detail behind it than a blanket response to, so we can't talk about that, let's move on. Yeah. Um, and there and was- As a member a of the public, you are allowed to ask for that information and they should be giving it to you. There's that um, accountability and, and transparency that, you know, like you said, working in the NHS, you know, the, things have to be evidence-based and you have to have the statistics to back it up. Yeah, and that is reflective. That is reflective in maternity services. So one of the things I regularly say to the people in my home birth group when they are given ridiculous suggestions by their midwives, which is frequent, unfortunately, nearly everyone in my group is high risk, and there's about six thousand people in that group. They cannot all be high risk. Is ask your midwife for the evidence-based paper behind that suggestion. Yeah, and you know yeah. what? They never have them, and neither do the consultants. They throw these things out there without the evidence and oh this is hospital policy and I say but hospital policy isn't evidence yeah that's not evidence that's your policy where's the evidence and it seems within maternity services there's this patriarchal culture that women should be treated like children and put her and shut her and just accept what they're told yeah which is what and that that q a it literally is just a q a they don't really hold like a briefing or anything like that so they go through the questions and the answers they don't take anything additional to that so that first session i was just like okay this was shambolic and if i had ever held a public forum like that in the areas that i work in i i think my director would have been very angry at me um and after that i think a lot of women in the mvp group fed back to say that was unacceptable that was not what these q a sessions we were expecting them to be you didn't even answer half of the questions and the responses were obviously in black and white in the minutes and they were very abrupt and even the people who didn't attend the session read the answers and thought what how yeah. could you answer that question like that so uh, i have to say the um the administrator of the MVP group who supports it and chairs it, she she's actually pretty good, and she had obviously taken back the um, the responses that we had got. And then there was another Q and A last week, I think, which was much better, where they had come prepared with answers, with data, with good. we understand that this is the situation for some of you, and we heard a we're, we're sorry. And I think that that's the first time we'd heard those words. And for us, I think that was like, a, that's all, for some of us, that's all we wanted to hear weeks before. We're sorry, but this is the situation because, and we hadn't even heard a sorry the week before. Mm. And it's kind of like they didn't care and they were very, they were quite frosty in their responses and not very warming and it's and I just thought great is this going to be the care that I'm under when I get to the hospital mm. because I'm freaking out about that a bit if that's the that's the kind of reception I'm going to get um the last Q&A session was a lot better I think that they it was fortuitous that they had good news to give because of the the restrictions yes. in one area so I think that that maybe made them feel a bit at ease but some of the responses were very you know go to pals 
go to here. I've written to pals, I've written to complaints, I've not heard anything back. I've written to the directors of the hospital, I've not heard anything back. Yeah, I've written to the chief exec of the hospital, I've not heard anything back. Um, so I'm like, okay, you're saying to follow this process, but the process clearly doesn't work because I sent this email to multiple people and nobody has responded. Exactly. And also, sending people to pals is a barrier. We know, Becky knows, I know, women don't complain to pals, okay? They, they don't do it. So it's just a way of stopping anybody from complaining because you might be able to because you're well-educated and, and able to cope with the system. Lots of other people aren't able to cope with the system. So as soon as you say to them, go away and ask this or go away and ask that, that question never gets asked again. Yeah. yeah, and I think that this is this is what kind of pushed me when um, somebody from BBC East Anglia saw my petition and contacted me and said, "Would you be willing to talk about it?" I just went, "Yeah, why not?" Because they're not they're not replying to any of my emails, so maybe they'll watch something on TV because they're it not is, willing to reply. It's such a shame that we're having to get to the point where we are naming and shaming um trusts and care providers because they are not listening and when people are using the correct channels and you know trying to get answers and not given those answers and you know it's um I cannot I can't really get to grips with how difficult it is for service providers and you know with the MVP they they were all you know created for the service users to have a voice Yet all I'm hearing is that, you know, posts aren't being approved because they're too negative or don't only post your positive posts or, you know, just groups maybe being um, having commenting turning off. And it's like, you know, people don't respond to that. Well, and I read those minutes that you're talking about, Kamal, um, from the first um, meeting and they were fucking awful, excuse my language. And I'm not surprised that, you know, you, you, there are a lot of angry women and families on there. I mean, I don't see that anymore because I'm banned from the group because I'm a naughty doula, um, but I hear about it, you know, and uh, throughout the pandemic, I've had women contacting me and families contacting me not happy. Um, about what's been going on and what's happened is there's been a real blame culture going on as well and this is something that I'm me and Sam I'm sure will will um, do a podcast on very soon and it's the blame culture within the birth um, birth world and you know doulas complaining about other doulas and midwives bashing doulas and um, there's a lot of it that's gone on so I'm not going to say any more on that and rant any more on that because that is definitely will take up another full hour of a podcast. No I agree with you on the um, reflections of the MVP group because one of the questions that I did ask, um, it's a shame you're not in that group because you can see all the comments that I make so I'm surprised yeah. I'm still in there, um, all the comments that I ask are always so what are you doing about this what are you doing about that and they've turned off the comments so I just write underneath other people's posts because that's yeah. the only way that I can write it because well, I can't write commenting. yeah they did last week I think yeah, yeah. the service user from commenting in the MVP group the MVP yeah. group is supposed to be the service user's voice exactly <laughs> exactly and I, in the meeting they talked about in the actual Q&A session they obviously said oh we've had some really good questions and you know we'd be interested in a couple of you who have got particularly louder voices they're probably talking about me um being part of like the maternity 
board or whatever it is, I contacted um, somebody via LinkedIn, via Facebook to say, I'd be very interested to be a patient advocate on that group. Um, can you let me know who I need to call, who I need to contact, but I've not heard anything back. So, I, I mean, if they want people to be involved, they're going to they're going to need people to be involved I mean I'd love to be involved because I know I know the NHS system and I'm a service user so I feel like I can take other people's experiences and think about it in a different way but at the same time because I know the ins and outs of the NHS I can probably phrase it in a way that might be different to somebody who might not know as much about the system and I think Absolutely. that's what some of the people in the MVP group um, like about when I get the points across to them because it's not just a moan it's a moan with something behind it you know the questions that's to ask and how to ask them and that's yeah, what we that's what we're like as doulas and that's why um, myself and other local doulas have been either kicked off or silenced in in the groups um, because we're asking those questions I'm not going to give my opinion of an MVP group that blocks local doulas and service users and free if they're commenting, because I think my opinion of that probably doesn't really need saying, other than to say all it does to me is enhance my view that MVPs are not fit for purpose, not because there are not amazing, in some of the MVPs across the country, there are amazing, dedicated people who are running MVP groups. I don't want anybody to think I'm knocking them all, but ultimately the complaints process and the service user voice needs to be completely independent, altogether, not funded by and not part of the trusts because you cannot have a complete open and honest process that is not separate. Yeah. So I'm just going to wrap up the podcast because we've, we've, chatted for an hour now well over an hour and could chat for another hour I'm, I'm pretty sure <laughs> I just before we go come on is there anything that you want to say anything else that you want to add I don't think so I think obviously you did to um the the petition that I've got which is mainly local for the Northampton General Hospital um yeah. my aim really with that is that and my request is that the um chief exec of Northamptonshire um hospital Northampton General Hospital that is um is able to look at how many people this is impacting um I, I know that the MVP local MVP group currently has a um a survey monkey running and that's probably going to get back the responses of two or three hundred people but I've got almost a thousand people here who are saying that they're against this current situation and how does that thousand people balance out against 200 survey monkeys um firstly so that's one thing and secondly it's really easy to um do to manipulate a survey monkey so um I, I don't really think that that's the best way of collecting information but um you know there are people who feel really strongly about this for multiple reasons and I just want them to take into consideration the COVID factor against everything else COVID is going to be here for a, a year maybe two years but all these other things child development um, parental responsibilities this this is going to follow us all for years to come yeah. years and years to come and they're looking at the now they're not looking at how this is going to affect us when we have a second child if we have a second child a third child what kind of 
issues it might bring up then they're not thinking about the development between the father and the baby they're not thinking about the mental health support that or lack of that is happening for the mothers and how that might impact them for the next 5 10 15 years um, or longer or how it might impact how they decide to look after their child or how it might impact how they cannot look after their child. They're not taking into consider at, um, pre and postnatal depression, um, of which many of us will be in, in that category. Um, there's a number of things that they've not considered. And I just hope that they're able to take a look at that and, and balance it between coronavirus which is is going to be here for a short period of time um there are ways around it and i just find it really distressing that they're saying that there is no plan because yeah. there should be something um and i think that's it really my real aim is okay i might not make any real change between now and when i have my baby which could be um as Samantha said next week <laughs> <laughs> could be next week who knows I just hope that there are other people after me who will benefit from these messages going out because I would not wish I would not wish this on anybody at all I, this experience and this first time experience I would never wish it on anybody at all so I just hope that anyone who comes after me has a more positive experience and some of these things are changed in time for them because it's really important for for others to um have a positive experience absolutely thank you Kamal Sam have you got any last words I know you were you were, were lost for words a few moments ago but I'm sure you've got something to say um I think Kamal sums it all up beautifully to be honest um I want to thank you for raising this awareness because obviously you are concerned way beyond yourself um, and that shines out in everything you just said in your summary and it's really heartening that you're concerned about the women who come after you as well. I think that's really lovely. And I'd also like to say both Becky and I are experienced in supporting induction and families who do end up with babies in NICU. And if there's anything, you've been kind enough to do this and do all this awareness raising, and that if there's anything we can do to help you, then we would, oh, well, I will offer my services if you want to chat or a call or to talk through your options around induction or anything like that then I would be more than happy and I'm sure Becky would be too to offer Absolutely. you that. Thank oh, you, for thank you so it. much. And everything yeah. else that you're doing. Yeah. Oh, that's made out. me smile. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on, Kamal. It'll be really lovely if you're up to it and when you're ready, when baby's here, perhaps to come and talk about your experience um, of the birth in the hospital. That would be really, really fantastic. Yeah. And we're going to put links to the petition on the podcast. Um, hopefully, uh, what, I'm, what I'm thinking is maybe we can... Um, uh, encourage local people to also um you know write to the chief exec of northampton general and um to get some kind of response that would be really good as well and yeah. also i can post the uh, link to the mvp survey monkey for those local to us in northamptonshire to be able to partake in because i think it's really good to get as many people feeding back as possible when these surveys come up so, yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Kamal. Um, and, yeah, hopefully good luck with your birth and hopefully we will speak to you very soon. Thank you very much and thank you for taking your time to interview me as well. It was really uh, great to share my part of the story. Oh, you're thank very you. welcome. You're very welcome. Okay, take care then. Bye. Okay. Bye.
Thank you for listening to the Birth Activists podcast. Until next time. Thank you.